This show is sponsored by the Pragmatic Studio. The Pragmatic Studio has been teaching iOS development since November of 2008. They have a four-day hands-on course where you learn all the tools, APIs, and techniques to build iOS apps with confidence and understand how all the pieces fit together. They have two courses coming up. The first one's in July from the 22nd to the 25th in Reston, Virginia, and you can get early registration up through June 21st. You can also sign up for their August course, and that's August 26th through the 29th in Denver, Colorado, and you can get early registration through July 26th. If you want a private course for teams of five developers or more, you can also sign up on their website at pragmaticstudio.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of iFreaks. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Good morning from overcast San Francisco. Rod Schmidt. Hello from uh, Salt Lake City. We also have Andrew Madsen filling in for us. Happy to be here, and I'm also in Salt Lake City. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Is it overcast out there, guys? Yeah, a little bit. I'm in a basement, so I can't tell you. <laughs> it's very overcast. It's, 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 been, it's been blowing in uh, stormy weather for a while, but it kind of clears up for a little bit. And then, anyway, nobody wants to hear about the weather. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Andrew, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly before we sure. get started? Sure, sure. I'm Andrew Madsen. Uh, I'm, I'm a Mac and iOS developer here in Salt Lake, and um, I work on music software for Mixed in Key and various things on my own and for, for contract clients, and I've been doing this for oh, eight years or something, and still gets me excited every day, and I love my work. So Awesome. All right, so this week we're going to be talking about debugging applications, and I'm really curious to see how this goes. I I haven't gotten far enough to have to debug any of my iOS apps yet. So uh, um, I'm, I'm a little bit curious, mainly because the applications are compiled and then sent over. And then on the device, I mean, there's not really a debug mode. So I'm, I'm a little curious to see what you guys come up with as far as finding bugs and fixing them. So what do you mean by this, uh, by debug mode? So, so I do most of my development in Ruby. And... Uh, I can kind of build the feedback right into the application, especially in a web app. Um, you know, I just put it out to the log or print it to the screen or something. Um, if it's running on an iOS device, you don't always have that option, do you? So you're talking about after you've already deployed the app and yeah. some user has downloaded it and is running with it. Right. Okay. So you kind of you kind of do, I think. I mean, you can get to the const- you can get to the logs. So if you you know use nslog or whatever to log t- to wherever you want to log you know log whatever messages you want to log to you can. Um, Do you log those locally or to a third-party service? Well, that's a good question. I actually, I mean, I guess in theory you can log them to a third-party service, but I have never thought of how to do that. I, well, I have done that. Uh, so test flight and probably other similar services, but TestFlight is a, a beta distribution, but also analytics um, service and SDK. Uh, they, they'll allow you to redirect specific log messages or even all, just all of your NS log messages to their service, and then, and then you can see those coming in from all users. Yeah, typically you won't see NS log messages unless you can get the user to upload their device log or something. Well, this is cool. So I guess we've test flight, you just use TF log instead of NS log, and it magically appears. Right. right. Sweet. That's Does that cool. only work for your beta users, or can you just turn that on for every user? 
you can turn on their whole analytics package for every user now. Huh. That's nice. So then it just pushes all of the all of the logging out to their service and then you can browse through it. Right. I mean, assuming that the users have good network connections, of course, it's still a web service. So it doesn't buffer them up and then send them out when it can. I couldn't tell you for sure about that. I, I it does, but I'm not sure if it'll do it between full app launches. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? That's interesting. So if they have um if they've been logging stuff through NSLog, then there's not really a terrific way of getting that information. Other than asking the user to go into the somewhere in the settings on, on an iOS device, there's a place where you can actually see diagnostic information including logs and uh, send those, but you can also download a iPhone configuration utility from Apple and get them off that way. But it turns out that that's pretty hard for the average user, right? And you end up <laughs> sending them some yeah. technical instructions and it's just success rate is quite low. So we've actually had a problem in one of our apps recently that a, a significant number of users have seen, but we've been a- unable to reproduce. So we've been trying to get logs and it really seems like only about one in 20 users who report the problem. So, so they report the problem. We ask for a log only around one in 20 of them actually get back to us with a log because they don't want to spend the time to go through the process. Mm-hmm. So it is a real problem. Now, the other question I have is if, if they are logging to a third party service, do you, they log it with like a device ID of some kind? No, we can't tie it, at least with test flight, and, and I suppose this is true now for all uh, all of these sorts of services. They're not tied to a particular device. Test flight gives you a count of, um, of the number of launch sessions that you've used, and you can look at information for a single session, but you have no way of tying that back to a specific user. So this is good for aggregate data. You know, if you see the same kind of error being logged lots of times by lots of different people, then indicates you've got a bug out there, but it's not so good for tying a log to a specific user's report. So presumably you could kind of hack that in by when the app starts up, like the first time it ever starts up, it it makes up a unique ID and writes it somewhere, and then every time it starts the session, it logs it, and then you could kind of reverse engineer back into a unique installation at least. Yeah. Sure. If you if you yeah. needed to. Yeah, because what I'm thinking is not necessarily that you go and knock on somebody's door and say, can I borrow your phone because I know you're having problems. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking more along the lines of they did this and they did that, then they did this, and so I can see how they flowed through things if I'm logging enough well, information. It, test flight will do that with sessions. So the, the, the usage session is all kind of globbed together. Oh, there you it, go. it just won't, wouldn't do it across like restarts of the application, I guess. Okay. Yeah, and if, if you want information about the device, they typically log um, the device uh, OS and what type it is, you know, whether it's a 4S or a 5, an iPad, things like that. And I'm guessing that can be really helpful if you've got this kind of narrow down, like, what's going on with this bug, if it's only happening on, right, like, taller iPhones or it's only happening with a certain version of the of the I, of iOS itself, then you can... That's going to really help you if you're reproducing a problem, right? Right. But what's really useful is crash reports. And so logging is kind of a second, a second line of, of defense of finding a, a problem. But services like Crashlytics and does test flight do crash reports, Andrew? Yes, it does. 
And so that'll, when a uh, crash does occur on some device, it'll get logged up to the surface, surface s- service, and then you can uh, look at the crash report, and it's symbolicated for you and everything. So it's it's really nice. That's really cool. So what kind of information do you get from the crash report? Depends we, on the crash report. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. You, you get the device, the OS, uh, you get the stack trace, all kinds of stuff that are really low level too. If you, if you really need to go down to that level, I try to avoid that when possible, like registers and just about everything. I, I think the most valuable thing for the average developer is the stack trace. So that shows you the the current state of the program's execution, uh, you know, what what methods were being run essentially uh, right. when the crash occurred. Does it give you parameters for each uh, method or function call? No. So it just tells you what you, much... what you see in any other crash or any uh, other stack trace. Right. Called this. Called this. Called this. Called this. Crashed here. Well, I think if you really know what you're doing, you can look at the registers and find that out. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think Rod's right, but I would guess 99% of iOS developers don't know what they're doing at that level, and I include myself in that. Me too. I'd have to. There's information on the net somewhere how to do it. Mm-hmm. So, if somebody reports a bug, what's kind of the process you go through in uh, identifying it and fixing it? Not very many people report bugs, so crash reports are, are pretty important in finding problems for for your app. So every time you get a crash, Crashlytics, for example, will will tell you about it, send you an email, and then you can investigate and fix it. But to to your question more specifically, uh, assuming you do get a report from a from an actual user, the first thing to do is to ask them to describe what they were doing when the app crashed or when the bug showed up. It's not always a crash, and with any luck, if you're lucky, and a lot of times you're not, but. Uh, you can follow those same steps and reproduce the bug yourself. And, and once you're at that point, if you're able to reproduce the bug yourself, you're in good shape because a bug you can reproduce is one you can fix. Uh, if not, then you have to try to gather more information, including things we've talked about, like uh, console logs and crash report if it's a crash. There are certain other kinds of, of bugs that you can't really get that kind of information for, and it really ends up just being you either have to reproduce it yourself or you need to get enough information from them that you can get a hunch and then try something and send them put them on your beta test list and send them a new build to try kind of thing yeah that makes sense so Um, the most difficult bugs are ones where you never can reproduce them and so your only option is to make changes send them to the user have them test those changes and then eventually hopefully get the bug fixed but uh, those are far from ideal yeah, that makes sense. I'm I'm just kind of I, I work tech support. In fact, I ran tech support for what two years for a startup out here, and it wasn't iOS apps, but I mean, same kind of thing, right? It's trying to get people to give you information off of their machine over the phone or in an email, and yeah, it's it's really really hard. One of the most helpful things that we did on some of those is that we named some of the more common errors. And so then when it came up, they could at least say, well, I'm getting this error. And then we could, you know, we knew what it meant because we knew what sorts of things, you know, it was, it identified a specific symptom. And then we could, you know, go from there and say what would cause that kind of a symptom. 
What about in your development environment? What kind of debugging tools do you have there? Well, mostly uh, we just use the Xcode debugger. Right, and you can and, put breakpoints uh, in and things like that? Right, you can put breakpoints. Um, you can also, instead of having it stop at the breakpoint, you can have it execute an action and keep, keep going, like, like logging or playing a sound. I think we may have talked about that in a previous episode. Yeah, I think I remember Sol was saying something. I think it was Sol Mora was saying he has it kind of set up so that it'll kind of squawk every time it makes a network request or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, every time it wrote to the wrote to core data so he could track how chatty it was. Maybe I'm imagining. Maybe that's what I was thinking would be cool to do rather than what he said he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can do, like, you know, conditional breakpoints. And you can, I mean... Chuck, if you're coming coming from a Ruby world, it's very, very, very powerful compared to compared to what you can do with Ruby. Yeah. So you can much say easier to use. Yeah, you can say break every one hundred times through this loop, or break <clears throat> once the counter uh, hits a certain value, or you can say break when this value is reassigned. So, example, if if a variable is if something's going wrong and you think the start of things going wrong is when a variable is assigned a value, then you can say break when this variable is when this variable is assigned a value or reassigned a value. So it's it's really, really powerful. Right, and then it just run, runs it in the emulator and... Uh... On the device as well. Oh, that's right. I have done that. Yeah, yeah. so the de- debugging on, on device is really just the same as in the simulator, and it's as full-featured as you would expect from a modern compiled language debugger. Do you ever find that there are discrepancies between the what runs in the simulator and what runs on the actual device? Well, typically no, but there are actually some, uh, at least a, a couple APIs that are not available in the simulator. So one, one in particular is if you access the, the music library on the device, it's also sometimes called the iPod library, uh, that a- API is just not available on if you're running in the simulator. So if your app depends on that or a feature in your app depends on that, it won't, it simply won't work in the simulator and you have to debug on device. Uh, other, other things that are of course device dependent are anything that uses specific hardware on the iPhone, like camera or gyroscope or, you know, accelerometer, that kind of thing, because those clearly don't exist in the simulator. You can simulate some of those things. Like you can turn, you can turn the simulator to, to deal with rotation Backgrounding has also not work. I discovered this recently. I wanted to do something with backgrounding, and it just doesn't. The process just stops, is totally paused as soon as you put it in the background, even though it should keep running if you're if you're developing a voice over IP app or something like that. <clears throat> as far as I can tell, there's no way to, to have it run in the background in the simulator, which is quite frustrating. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I, I haven't run into that myself. To be honest, I mostly have done devi- development on device because because of those limitations I just talked about. Right. Yeah. There's some, this isn't really related to debugging, but there's some difference in, in things like the uh, like Safari. Um, I believe, it might have changed, but I believe in the simulator, uh, when you're using Safari, you're essentially using um, the same, you're using the desktop Safari, uh, your desktop WebKit. It, when you're running it on the device, you're, you're using mobile Safari. And so if you're doing web development and you're testing it in the simulator, you might have different, uh, things happen than if you're, if you're using it, uh, using it on device. Although that's, that's pretty rare. That's a pretty, there's only a few edge cases where that's, that's the case that I found. 
Well, that, I think that's an interesting point because the simulator is not an emulator, and by that I mean it is not emulating a, an ARM uh, CPU, and it's not emulating the entire device. In fact, it's actually run, you're running uh, you're running your app on your Mac natively. So when you compile an app for the simulator, it's compiled for x86, and that also means, of course, that an app might run much faster in the simulator than on your device because the CPU it's running on is yep. likely to be much faster. The biggest thing there is the memory warnings, right? Like if you're only developing on your device, sorry, if you're only developing in the simulator, then you're basically running uh, an iPhone with like four gigs of RAM or 16 gigs of RAM or something because that's what your computer has. But then if you switch to running it on like a, an old iPad uh, on the device, you're suddenly going to get a bunch of memory warnings that you hadn't been experiencing when you're running it on on the simulator and it, it's also for for just raw performance like if you're dealing sure. with animations or, or scrolling performance the simulator is not the place to test and optimize that stuff yeah. you can simulate out of memory conditions like on the menu of the simulator there's a, a command that says uh i don't know simulate low memory condition or something like that yeah and there's also uh simulate on a that you're on a call so you, it helps with those things i guess that stuff is actually more convenient on the simulator than the real device like if you want to simulate being on a call you don't actually have to literally telephone yourself <laughs> right <laughs> and same thing with core location i think that actually that's i think that's an xcode you can actually tell it to say i'm going to simulate it so that i'm at this location yeah and you can it'll it'll actually simulate driving now, uh, so right. you can actually say simulate I'm driving around this path, so you can test your turn by turn app that you're developing or something like that. We all need another turn by turn app. I want a turn by turn app uh, for dogs. <laughs> 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 oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yep. Is that so your dog can find its way around, or so you can find your dog? So I can find my dog. I don't know. I just like coming up with ideas, dot, 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 for dogs. <laughs> <laughs> or dot, 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 for the Enterprise. Is that remote control dog? Yeah, for the Enterprise. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the other, so we kind of almost kind of touched on this a little bit uh, when we were talking about put, you know measuring performance. Uh, so instruments is this thing that lets you kind of measure loads of different characteristics of your application or of the whole system as it's running. Um, and one of the really cool things it does is to help you measure what your graphics are doing in terms of whether you're rendering things, how often you're rendering things, whether you're rendering them in on the processor, on the CPU or the GPU. Uh, loads of, so it has these really nice kind of visual cues. So you can turn on this um, this mode in... Uh, in an instruments where it will it will highlight with different colors areas of your areas of the UI that are doing kind of naughty things that are going to affect your your frame rate, um, and I I have found that incredibly useful when trying to figure out why like a scroll isn't scrolling at the right rate or at a good frames per second, and you can also just turn on a graph that measures the frames per second, uh, so you can that's normally like if 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 I'm I guess debugging a performance issue. I will turn on that graph and watch the frames per second and then just kind of tootle around the app on the device. Um, and, you, you know, normally I'll try and find the oldest, crappiest device that, that is supported because that's the one where you're going to see these issues. And then, you know, watch for those frames per second to, to drop down. And that's your, that's, that's an issue. That's that, there you've identified somewhere where there's, you know, a, 
a rendering issue and then you can kind of start turning on all of these fancy highlighting features to figure out why the frames per second are low. Like maybe I'm doing all the rendering on the CPU rather than the GPU or maybe, I don't know, some other issues. So that's that's super useful. Yeah, I think instruments is one of the most useful and, and sort of powerful tools we have in our toolbox as iOS developers. Uh, it, besides what Pete just described, it can help you with all kinds of issues, including uh, CPU-bound performance problems, uh, memory problems, you know, where you send a message to something that has been deallocated, uh, memory leaks, that kind of thing. And zombies. Yeah, zombies. Zombies is what the what the tool for finding over releases where you've where you've an object's been deallocated and then you still try to use it. Uh, and the, the icon's pretty funny. It's a cube with sort some of it's kind of like rotten green looking. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> So if you if you're not using instruments to find problems and to fix them you should be it's it's a very powerful tool. So there's there's some other techniques that you can use to find bugs. Um this is before deployment and that's asserts asserts can help you find uh places where you're passing um you know bad parameters or some assumption you've made is erroneous. So um, these were popularized by the Eiffel language, where you can have um, preconditions and postconditions in, in, in variants. So before a method or at the start of a method, you can assert all your parameters, make sure they're correct. Um, and those would be your preconditions. And then you, at the end of your method, you can assert pr- the postconditions, what should be true when, when the method is uh, leaving. And then... In loops, you can assert things that should always be true while the loop is executing. So those can those can find a lot of bugs too. I don't know if this is premature, but Rod told me to have a pick ready, and my pick is about asserts. So you, you can wait, save that for later. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Keep Foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Good. Uh, I, I love your Eiffel reference, Rod. I thought that was the only person that was an Eiffel fanboy. <laughs> I never got to use Eiffel, but it had some good ideas. I applied to work at um, whatever that company was that made Eiffel because I was so in love with that. That was when I was in college. I read Bertrand Meyer's big old design by contract stuff, and I was like uh-huh. super into it. I never got to work there. I think they're still around. Anyway, that's not <laughs> nothing to do with debugging iOS applications. <laughs> So is is there a way of uh, debugging or capturing input from from your users? I mean, you can use um, you could you could use a a um, analytics package in that way, I suppose. So there's there's analytics packages that will let you kind of instrument your application so you can see you know people are on this screen and how often do they tap on this button and when they tap on this button, how often do they go to the next stage in the flow or something? So kind of the same way as you do web analytics to to figure out how people are using your web app. You can do the same thing for your iOS app. So I guess you could maybe use that same functionality to figure out, you know, this person got three three steps through the flow and then crashed. Um, I don't know if there's a better way of doing that. Instruments also has UI automation, so you can uh, kind of script a, a UI actions like, and test it that way. Yeah, which is really nice if going back to performance, if you want to, um, which is why it's built into instruments, I suspect. If you want to measure the performance in a consistent way, then uh, that's what you do. So the other question I guess I have is a lot of times the tricky places to debug things are along boundaries. 
So, for example, if you're um, if you're passing information over to another app to do something, or if you're um, interfacing with a an online backend system, uh, you know, or some kind of uh, online persistence or synchronization, uh, are there good techniques for uh, debugging those? Well, one thing, like say your uh, your app's going to get called by another app via a URL scheme or something, you can tell Xcode, um, the debugger, don't start the debugger until my app is launched instead of launching it right away. Mm-hmm. That can help in that situation. I think the the problem you bring up can be pretty tough. So I told you, I, I mentioned earlier a problem that we've had at work with the iOS app that users, there are a significant number of users that have seen a problem, but we can't reproduce it. Well, it turns out that that problem I was talking about is related to Facebook sharing. And best we can tell, it affects certain Facebook users. And since we are not affected Facebook users, it's very hard for us to reproduce. And we also can't go into Facebook and, you know, look at their error logs or debug information there. So we're sort of reduced to doing debugging by, you know, making changes and hoping they have an effect and then testing them out. And it's pretty tough. So I don't really know of a at least for that kind of a problem, I don't know of a, a better option. You could try writing a, pr- a proxy for Facebook or something, but that might not <laughs> yeah. get, get you anywhere. <laughs> might, might be pretty tough. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. we would have to. We would have to. It would have to be so close that it would would yeah. also mimic the error, right? You don't. Yeah, you don't. There's this thing called. Um, there's this thing called RunScope that's kind of like a, a proxy, and you could just push all the traffic through RunScope, and then it's going to show you the exact traffic going back and forth. Well, that's interesting. This this problem seems to be a problem where we do the exact same thing for two different users, and the mm-hmm. Facebook web service returns an error for one of them, not for the other. Yeah. There's also the, the Charles that, we, that uh, Ben yeah. talked about, I think, last week or on his podcast, or his screencast. Yeah, yeah run, Runscope's kind of like Charles in the cloud, basically. It's kind of funny. I tweeted the other day, someone should make Charles in the cloud as a service, and these Runscope guys tweeted me back and said, we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've used Charles in the past, and it's, it's pretty handy. And I've used it for uh, for web stuff. I've also used it to spy on apps that I'm running on my Mac um, to see what they're calling out with. That's always interesting. Hmm. There's another app called Little Snitch that's, I think, the sort of popular way to do that on the Mac. But I, I know people that run that all the time just to see what they're, to, to monitor outgoing network connections for things they don't want. You can block them too. Yeah, and you can, you can use it to check up on things if you're running things uh, through your machine. But uh, from the actual iOS device, I just don't know if there's a terrific way of, of doing that outside of using something like RunScope or something to, you know, see what what it's calling back, where it's calling back to and what it's sending back. Right. Yeah, I, I, it's not something I've really dealt with. I've done uh, some really low-level Ethernet, you know, TCP, IP, well, actually UDP development, and you can use a, a program called Wireshark to... But that, that shows you the, the, the binary data that's going out over the Ethernet port or the network port. And I've actually done that for iOS. You have to route your traffic through the through your Mac or something, you know, some machine running Wireshark to see everything that's going to and from. Yep. 
It, it's a cool program, though. I, I'm trying to remember. Eat the Real, I think, is what it was called before. Way long time ago. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. And then and then it became Wireshark. I used it quite a bit when I was a sysadmin to try and figure out what some of the stuff that was going across the network was. So anyway, yeah. So those those are all good resources for for that. And you know, you can see what's going through. You can also, um, if you control the back end, a lot of times you can look through the logs there and see what's being pushed in and where the problems are, what it's sending back through similar logging methods there which is also pretty nice. And I have to say that I'm much more specialized on the back end than the front end. Hint, hint, if you need a developer that does that, I'm for <laughs> hire. But, uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting to see where, where this breaks down and, and where some of the disconnects are between what you expect and what, what you actually get. Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that Apple is not really a web company. They're a you know, they, they make devices and software that runs natively on those devices. And you can sort of see that in some of their, their tools. Their tools are not geared toward debugging web integration so much as, you know, the app running on device, which you expect, but sometimes it would be nice to have some of those, those tools built in. And, and I think iCloud is actually a good example of that because that is an Apple web service. And while they've improved a little bit, it's mostly pretty much completely opaque and you just can't debug it at all. It just works or doesn't and pretty much out of your hands. So Yeah, it's the same with the push notification service. They have. Right. It's yeah. you know, you, you do things this way and then black box it just works or it doesn't. Alright, well are there any other debugging techniques that you guys use? Occasionally I'll you know, you'll you if you uh you're trying to narrow down a bug, you comment out some code and see how it affects things and and try to narrow it down to you know the method or the line that's causing the exact problem yeah there's also the technique of uh, actually printing something to the screen as it moves through of course your uh, breakpoints will give you that so yeah I, I I had a thought which was I was at WWDC last month and I had a problem that I was uh, having with um, actually with a Mac app but um, I went went into the labs to talk to one of the Apple engineers about this problem I was having, and it turned out uh, there was a problem with NS Table View. And, you know, the engineer that I got there was the guy who wrote NS Table View. And it was sort of amazing to see him sit down, and within 30 seconds, he had found and fixed my problem. And he he used the debugger so much more quickly than I can use it. And partly, of course, that was because he knows the code intimately, but also just his ability to use the debugger was impressive. And one thing I noticed is that instead of using the the GUI for for the Xcode debugger, he did almost everything using the command line interface. Um, so Xcode actually gives you a command line interface to the debugger, uh, which internally is LLDB. Now it used to be GDB. Um, but I think that's a I think that's something that can be valuable. Is if you actually learn how to use the command line interface for the debugger, you can. There's a lot of functionality there that's either easier to use or not available at all in the in the GUI, and you can take advantage of that, and some of it's very powerful. And you can use those commands in the Xcode console too, right? Well, yeah, that's what I mean. So he was in Xcode, but he was just using the Xcode console. You know, it gives, it gives you a command line interface to the debugger while you're running. I've used that a lot to just dump out like the result of an expression. So if you say P space and then the expression, it will evaluate it there and then. Or right. P-O. Yeah, yeah P- P-O, 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 P-O. I use that all the time. I, I like, use that too. 
I think it's kind of funny because I think that's what everyone or a lot of people like. That's like the one bit of the command line LLDB that we know, and then after that, it's all <laughs> this, this incredible arcane black art. Right. Right. So it, he he was using it for for everything. He was setting breakpoints, symbolic breakpoints that way, and and you know printing out stack traces and all that. And uh, I just found it interesting that he was so fast with it, and he seemed more productive that way. And I that's think. Awesome. It could be beneficial to learn some of that. So I, I, another thing I know about LLDB in particular is that it um, has a full Python interpreter and a Python API. So you can actually write Python scripts to extend the functionality of the debugger. And you can tell it to, to run a Python script when you've hit a breakpoint or, or some similar thing like that. And I, I actually saw uh, uh, Mark Dalrymple talk at our Cocoa Heads meeting, I, I think a couple of years ago, but he had a a function that would print, or that would, when a, when a breakpoint was hit, it would actually look up the stack trace and look for a specific method in the stack trace above the method that was, that the breakpoint was in. And if that method was not there, it would continue instead of breaking. So it gave him this powerful way to, to break in a particular method, but only if it w- was being called from, from another, a specific other method and not in any other case. Um, but it was just an example of, the powerful things you can do if you understand LLDB at a lower level than I think most of us do. Wait a minute. That's a great so, example. So you're just you're saying that the debugger is just code? Uh, well, the debugger is a program. I know. I'm just but, that, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but it does. It so it has a Python interpreter and a Python API built in, so you can extend. You can write you know extensions to the debugger in Python, not in some other language, but uh, that can be very pow- powerful, and I think it's something very few people are really using. Why is all the really useful stuff in Python? <laughs> Why not Ruby? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it, folks. <laughs> I think those are the two things that I, the two things that I I wish I was better at, um, and kind of I'm sad that I'm not. Is the that all of that command line debugging stuff to LLDB and, and using Python, and then Dtrace as well is this other incredibly powerful tool for debugging. I think it's it's what I uh, it's what Instruments is built on top of, but it's it's again it's another one of those like arcane black arts where you see someone who's powerful in it and it, they do look like they're literally performing magic, but like I have no idea how to do it. So Dtrace, yep. you can say you could measure every single time a method is called, or you can. I, I can't even think of, of good examples because it's too magical for, for my brain to, to get its head around. Well, I, I, we had a problem where an app was rejected from the App Store. It's, it's actually a, a Mac app again, but rejected from the Mac App Store for opening a file in read-write mode that it should have only been opening in, in read-only mode. And we had no idea. We weren't doing anything in particular. We were using some higher-level API, you know, some Objective-C API to open this file, and we were not writing to it, but Turned out it was being opened in read-write mode, uh, and I used Dtrace to find that. So Dtrace was able to give me um, to show me files as they were being opened, the, the permissions they were being opened with, etc. And but again, I, I don't know how to use it. I found somebody else on you know a blog post that were, was talking about debugging that exact kind of issue, and they had they had instructions to use Dtrace on the command line to figure it out, and made me wish that I knew how to do that. And Chuck, since you're a Ruby fanboy. Ruby 2.0 is now instrumented with Dtrace, so you get some of that goodness in Ruby nowadays. Yep. Yeah, I've, I've heard a few people talking about it, so yeah, I need to check it out. 
All right. Well, let's do the picks then. Uh, Pete, why don't you start us off? Okie dokie. My first pick, a late entry, is a blog series called Hooked on D-Trace. <laughs> Since we were just talking about it, I was like, oh, I think I read a blog series about that. So it's from uh, the wonderful smart people at Big Nerd Ranch, and it's fairly recent. It was February of this year, so I think it's pretty um, pretty current. And I started reading through this. I'll be honest, I didn't. there's like four parts to this series. I didn't get all the way through, but it seems like a good place to get started at least at least it gives you some if nothing else it gives you some sense of the kind of the power of of dtrace maybe will motivate you to to learn more my second pick is uh the the great state of colorado i was in colorado for a conference and then i went backpacking in colorado rocky mountain national park in colorado after that and it was awesome super fun really nice place nice people uh so yay i like colorado it was awesome and then my third pick, which is kind of random, is a book called Presentation Patterns. And it's from a guy called Neil Ford, who is a thought worker, and then also a guy from GitHub and a third person who's, who I can't remember. And it's a book about uh, how to do good presentations. So uh, not just kind of visually, but like the whole art of giving a good technical presentation. Uh, it's supposed to be about presentations in general, but it's definitely geared towards more towards technical things. And it's written in in pattern form, so so kind of you know like design patterns or um, implementation patterns. The kind of the idea of building a pattern language around presentations, and I found that really, 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 really useful for me. If you're interested in doing presentations, I highly recommend it. It's very um, it's very kind of like because it's in pattern form. There's lots of succinct little chapters that you can read in you know five minutes um, and just kind of work your way through quite quite quickly and there's there's loads and loads of really good ideas so yep that's my third pick presentation patterns that's all i've got today all right rod what are your picks first off i'll do uh coco lumberjack uh, it's a a logging tool similar to log4j um that uh, makes your logs easier to read you can color them and and filter out certain things based on debugging level and all kinds of stuff so using logs that that'll be very useful and then a couple of books that talk about um, writing bug-free code that I've I launched down to a long time ago when I started my career. And one of them is No Bugs by David Thielen. Talks about using a debugger and deserts and all that. And also Writing Solid Code by Steve McGuire. Oddly enough, both written by Microsoft employees. And then my final pick will be the uh, Major League Baseball at bat app because it let me watch the home run derby win ESPN app wouldn't and that's it nice um andrew what are your picks so i only have one pick and my pick is this uh previously mentioned asserts blog post by mike ash so mike ash has a has a blog called ns blog that um goes it, it's it's about uh mac and ios programming and it's very technical and that's what i like about it so he he goes into very low level details sometimes assembly about ios and mac development topics but Back in May, he did a post about asserts and the proper use of them. And this is something we've sort of been discussing internally at work, and, and I think it's valuable. But he talks about when you should, what an assert does, what it's good for, when you should use it, when you should use them, when you should not use them. Pretty valuable stuff. Awesome. All right. Well, I've got a couple of picks. Um, I'm going to be going to the Mountain West uh, Ruby Conference, or not Mountain West, Lone Star Ruby Conference. And then I'm also going to be uh, doing a retreat with the guys from Ruby Rogues. 
And a couple of things that have really paid off uh, for us, um, first off, is uh, for travel, I usually fly Delta, and I have a Delta Sky Miles card. The the thing that I really like about uh, all of that is that uh, I can use the Delta app to check into the flight, do all that stuff. Um, it, it just makes my life a whole lot easier. So I'm, I'm going to pick the Delta app. The other thing is, is we, we looked at a couple of, uh, like, Airbnb to find our house. And we're staying at a house in Austin for the, the three days with the Rogues guys. And so um, I'm going to pick them as well, Airbnb.com, just as a great way of finding, you know, a good a good place to stay while you're out at conferences. And um, the other pick that I have is um, IRC chat. Um, most of the conferences I attend have a back channel IRC chat discussion. And so I really enjoy that. And I use an app called uh, Colloquy to do my IRC stuff. And so I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And uh, those are my picks. Yeah, we'll wrap up the show, I guess. Hey, can I have a late, late breaking pick? Go ahead. I'm going to just throw this in since we were talking about it very briefly. Uh, there's a book called Object Oriented Software Construction, yeah. uh, which is written by the Eiffel guys. And they talk about this concept that Rod, Rod was talking about uh, of design by contract. So assertion, asserting preconditions, postconditions, and invariance. The book is old and crafty. The concepts in there are super duper awesome. So, um, I, I recommend it if you're looking for like an old, an old software book that that will probably make you think about the way you do modern software differently. Then, um, object-oriented software construction uh, is a good place to start. I've been meaning to read that book, just haven't gotten to it. It's a big one. Yeah, it's awesome though. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Um, we'll wrap the show up. We'll catch y'all next week.